So first, you always want to clarify what weakness means with the patient. And the best way isn't necessarily to be like, what do you mean by weakness? Because the patient's probably going to give you the same piece of history. The better ask there is tell me some of the activities that you have problems with. Hello and welcome to Brain Boy Neurology. I'm your host, Jamie Holloman. Let's get started. Welcome to Brain Boy Neurology, the podcast where we explore clinical neurology through discussions with experts in the field. Today we'll be talking about how to tailor your history and exam to achieve complaint of weakness. We talk about all the relevant questions to ask and how these questions allow you to narrow down your differential and guide further testing. We use a patient case of statin-induced myopathy as the basis for our discussion. We've got an excellent guest today to lead our conversation. Dr. Robert Buccelli is a neurologist here at WashU who specializes in the treatment of patients with neuromuscular disorders. Dr. Buccelli got his MD and PhD from the University of Buffalo. He then completed a neurology residency here at WashU, followed by a fellowship in neuromuscular disorders, has been a faculty member ever since. He's a fantastic teacher and is a five-time recipient of the Eliason Award for Teaching Excellence. This is an award given annually by neurology residents to attending physicians who demonstrate excellence in teaching. As a preface to our conversation, I thought it'd be helpful to go over some of the terminology we use. A common approach that we use when evaluating neurological patients is something called localization. Localization is a term that means pinpointing the specific part of the nervous system that's dysfunctioning. This could be a muscle, a nerve, the spinal cord, the brain, or specific parts of each of these different areas. It's a helpful diagnostic skill because it allows you to develop a hypothesis for what else to look for on history and exam and what kind of workup you should undertake. For example, if you localize the problem to the patient's muscles, then there are specific questions you could ask to assess for muscle weakness, uh, certain physical exam findings that suggest muscle weakness, and specific tests that look purely at the muscles. Localization is a skill you build as a neurology resident and continue to hone over years of practice. If you've ever overheard a conversation between neurologists and they were using super technical and abstract words and you thought, this is probably the nerdiest conversation I've ever heard, there's a good chance they were talking about localization. It's a skill I struggle with, especially in patients with neuromuscular disorders, and this conversation was particularly helpful for me. Also, I think it's helpful to know some of the broader terms we use to describe the nervous system. Two big areas of the nervous system are the central nervous system, which involves the brain and the spine, and the peripheral nervous system, which involves the nerves that come off the spine, the junction between the nerves and muscles, and the muscles themselves. So when I say uh, neurological localization and the peripheral nervous, nervous system, I'm referring to an attempt to pinpoint the specific part of the peripheral nervous system, uh, specifically the the nerves or the junction between the nerves and the muscles or the muscles themselves that is dysfunctioning. These are the the most common areas that are affected in patients with neuromuscular disorders. And so with that introduction, let's jump into our conversation. Uh, This was a great one. I, I really hope you enjoy. Great. So I'm uh, sitting here with Dr. Bucelli. Uh, Dr. Bucelli, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Sure. No problem. And uh, so uh, for our conversation today, I was hoping to talk about a neurological localization in the peripheral nervous system and talk to you through some cases um, to get an idea of how you typically approach these types of patients. Um, but to start off with, I was just hoping to ask you a couple of questions about professional development and, and what got you to 
the place that you're in today. And sure. to, uh, to start off, um, uh, what initially got you interested in neurology? Yeah, so um, interest in neurology was um, probably founded in some, to some degree, you know, interest in neuroscience uh, as an undergrad. I worked in a, a developmental neurobiology lab uh, in undergraduate. Um, thought I was interested in the nervous system given, you know, family experiences with neurologic disease and was always fascinated by uh, neuroscience. Um, once I uh, started working in the lab um, and things moved forward and I ended up pursuing a PhD, when I was finishing my PhD, I didn't really know what I would end up doing um, clinically, um, which I think a lot of people struggle with. And I didn't, I, I clearly appreciated and was reminded that, that neurobiology and neuroscience is a very different thing than the clinical practice of neurology. Mm. And um, that they were not always uh, with one fitting one uh, kind of side of your interests. The other may not be the natural fit that people expect it to be. So mm. I went back into medical school with an open mind. Um, I was very interested. I did a lot of microscope work and pathology work, um, both undergrad and in graduate school. So I was interested in pathology. I was interested in radiology. And I was Initially, not interested in medicine at all, but as I got my feet back underneath me clinically, I, I did like internal medicine. And the bottom line, to keep this short so it doesn't take up the whole hour, um, with certain with certain you know uh, mentors and advisors uh, that that I worked with during my PhD and and after returning to medical school, it really made me realize that that with the way neurology was evolving in the field of neurology, that that you know, many individuals can do as much or as little of all four of those things as, as they'd like. So as a neurologist, obviously there's the clinical practice neurology, but plenty of them have active roles as, as medicine physicians. They're reading their own scans and, and functioning as radiologists. And particularly in the world of neuromuscular, um, there's definitely, you know, world-renowned pathologists that are, are neuromuscular trained neurologists. So, Absolutely. so because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do, neurology was a logical selection because it left a lot of doors open for me. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, basically took the same approach after I, I matched for residency and, and, and used that same kind of keeping as many doors open approach as I could as I moved through things. And, um, you know, I don't know how much, I think some of your questions were about how I ended up pursuing neuromuscular. So I can yeah. just jump in and talking about that. Please. I didn't actually know anything about neuromuscular disease as a, before I came to, to wash you. Um, it was my time as a PGY2 taking care of a lot of patients that um, were followed by, you know, kind of master clinician educators here, Alan Pestronk, Malozzi, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, before the days of nurse practitioners, when, when all of those patients were taken care of by us as residents, th those were the patients that, that always fascinated me. And mm -hmm. I often found them most challenging and, and kind of um, I'm somebody that likes um, puzzles and, and taking care of complicated cases and figuring them out. And I found that, you know, that patient population made me kind of um, 
really kind of caught my interest, made me excited, um, mm-hmm. really drew me towards them. And so the combination of that and, and, and being in the inpatient setting uh, kind of set in place, you know, additional pathways moving forward as a clinician. And, and when I was deciding my subspecialty training, I, I knew, you know, hands down that I would get the best clinical training possible in an area that I was very interested in, in neuromuscular and then my prior interest that I mentioned to you as a pathology, you know, kind of interest, my pathology interests, you know, really served themselves well in, in neuromuscular. So I was able to, through fellowship, re-engage in doing more pathology work. And, and now I, I do function as a neuromuscular pathologist, a clinical neuromuscular pathologist with some of my time. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it was a, it was something that I knew absolutely nothing about as a specialty, but I, I came to the right place in the country to, yeah. <laughs> to learn about it. And, and it really caught my interest when I honestly came because of my interest in biology and neuroscience, I, I actually thought I was going to end up doing sleep medicine. Mm. Once I started practicing as a neurologist and actually seeing what neurologists do as a, as a, as a PGY two, I realized very quickly that I could never tremendous respect for uh, sleep a neurologist, particularly being married to one, but, but I, um, I, I just could never, um, uh, function as a sleep neurologist and people that know me know that I would struggle immensely in, in that paradigm and in, in the out, outpatient setting. So, um, you know, it, it, it was very clear after, after starting training that that wasn't going to be the right fit for me. And, and, you know, my interests were lied elsewhere. So makes sense. And so you do neuropathological interpretation of uh, muscle biopsies and nerve biopsies now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I, so we have a fairly high volume of nerve and muscle pathology at our institution, you know, because of Alan Pestronk and the kind of massive lab clinical laboratory that he's, he's built, you know, he built off predecessors that had a lab, but he's really turned it into this world renowned entity. And, um, you know, I've trained underneath him during the time as both a resident and a fellow. And so he's been my primary mentor for both clinical and my, my role as a, a pathologist. And during fellowship, you know, I, I definitely had an interest and then continued to stay involved and engage as um, faculty, junior faculty. And, and now I, I handle a quarter of the nerve and muscle pathology volume for our, for our lab. So, wow. Yeah. And I think it's tough to appreciate just because I've only ever been exposed to our neuromuscle department, but I would imagine uh, yeah, other places don't have nearly as much direct exposure to pathology. I remember as a resident, we had a, a patient who had a, a muscle biopsy and Dr. Pestronk just invited us over to look at the slides with him and we went through it, which- um, Yeah. Yeah. When I'm on service, that's a, a regular occurrence. You know, if we do any biopsies or anything, it's we're always, nowadays we have to you know, do it via zoom, but it used to be bringing people down to the multi-head scope room and, and walking them through what we're seeing. So, yeah, that's, that's phenomenal. And did you always envision yourself in academics? I think so. Yeah. I, just like I could never survive as a, as an outpatient sleep neurologist, I could never survive as an outpatient, you know, um, non-academic neurologist seeing 20 patients a day. Those that work with me know I would drown in that environment. So, yeah, and it's respect for people that can do it. It's just it, it would require a complete overhaul of my approach to life. So, <laughs> not not advisable. 
And so it sounds like a lot of sort of the intrinsic value you find is from the puzzle of it and sort of working things out and kind of spending the time and thinking things through. I think yeah, that's things. definitely what drew me to to the specialty initially. But but I'll be honest, you know, um, since I've I've um, settled in as a neuromuscular clinician, you know, I've done a number of other things that have been incredibly rewarding. So I, I spend a good portion of my time working with the ALS population, both clinically as well as running clinical trials. And, and that's been, you know, something that I find as rewarding, if not more rewarding than anything else that I do. Um, it, um, you know, and I've also, you know, in the, in the course of the training, you know, been able to participate and help out a lot with, um, education and training. And that's something that I've, I've always had an interest in and didn't appreciate how interested I was in it till I again, worked with, with, and, and appreciated the impact that individuals can have on, on, on folks that are kind of crafting their life and starting their career. And, um, you know, I, I credit, you know, Mama Alozi, who, who I have always revered as, as a, as just the best teacher at our institution. And he had a lot of, um, kind of impact on me, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. understanding how much of, um, how much a good mentor and teacher can benefit, you know, and, and the effect that they can have on so many different individuals and so mm-hmm. many generations of neurologists. So I credit him a lot, not only with um, making sure I understand the importance of, of a good educator and, and somebody that's clearly dedicated to, to, to education, but also, um, you know, the, the impact that that can have um, and, and the approach, the approach mm-hmm. that needs to be taken to, to be an effective educator. So it wasn't anything that I, again, I think the, the core concept in, in all of this is um, your mentors are, are so key and, and, and they have such a big influence on you. And, and um, you know, the right mentor can, can really, really in many cases can, can really, um, uh, play a huge role in, in what you end up doing with your life. So I, I definitely would credit and, and, and express a great appreciation to those individuals that, uh, have, have been, have fulfilled that role for me. So. Absolutely. And if you had to give any advice to a, a junior learner, a, a neurology resident right now, um, about just sort of building your skill set, building your knowledge base, I think something I envy about your clinical practice is, I always tell my girlfriend when I'm going, it's it's like the Dr. House clinic where there's just <laughs> all these kind of fascinating cases and, and sort of very atypical. Which by the way, I have to, I don't know if you've seen, but we have to talk about your, your patient from Monday. Yeah. That there's actually a couple of, particularly given your area of interest, there's a couple of really important leads there that, that, you know, one, so I, I'd say one of my favorite things in fact, probably the, as I mentioned, I love taking care of ALS patients, but one of my favorite things to do is to, have somebody come to see me thinking they have ALS and, and tell them they have something else. So, yeah, yeah. so you'll be able to help me out in, in achieving that in that particular case. So that, Oh man. Yeah. yeah. Incredibly excited. Yeah. yeah. Cause he was, we uh, worked together this Monday um, in, in clinic and yeah, just one of the nicest guys ever. Um, so yeah, if we could sort of give him the diagnosis of not ALS. That, that yeah, would be, yeah, exactly. That would be phenomenal. Now we have to get to the bottom of what it is, but it, yeah, hopefully something treatable. Yeah. And so if you had to track your own course of sort of building proficiencies or, or getting better as a clinician, was anything you, you particularly found helpful in, in doing that? 
Yeah, I, I wish I had some magic kind of words of wisdom. I'll be honest with you, though, if I, you know, I, I would credit. So first piece of advice, and I'd said it already, but I'll just mention again, great mentors, super important. You know, mentors are are, are um, key, not only when you're in the stage of being a medical student or a resident and figuring out what you want to do with your life, but then once you're in that position, you know, continued um relationships with people that that will look out for you help you as you kind of navigate the different stages of your career are, are key the other thing that i always come back to and and you know i i credit 100 percent is just work ethic so if you're willing to work hard and put in hours and you know have a thirst for knowledge and and just a passion for what you do and and I would say a healthy amount of pride in what you do too. It's mm. important to take kind of stock and wanting to do well. I think that goes a long way. Sometimes you don't want to be too proud, of course, but but I think a healthy amount of pride can take you a long way. Um, I think the honestly, I have nothing magical about anything that I do. I'm not particularly like super brilliant or anything. I just literally am willing to work really hard. Mm. I saw as many patients as I could sometimes not by choice. <laughs> Volume is, is so important. And then I think the other thing that's really important is to just pay attention to your seniors and your peers and just be, you know, as any good neurologist, you want to be really good at observing others. And I definitely can say that my approach to doing so many different things in my clinical practice is this amalgam of all these different individuals that I I watched how this person checked reflexes when I was mm. a junior and I watched how this person did eye movements and, you know, everything you, you constantly want to be observing and, and, and deciding on how you're going to kind of use all these very um, kind of valuable resources to craft your approach to patient care. And, and that continues throughout your career. You know, I'm still picking up little things that kind of come up and down in terms of my use of frequency when I'm doing clinical assessments, you always you always want to be learning. I know it sounds cliche, but you always want to be kind of dynamic and open to changing the way that you do things. Mm -hmm. I think that makes work and, you know, it makes it less of a job and more of kind of a career. And it really, really makes, you know, work exciting when you're, when you're, when you're not doing the same thing year in, year out, day in, day out. Um, mm -hmm. And so be observant, work really hard, high volume, never turn down an opportunity because while you're a PGY2 in the middle of the year and it's <laughs> winter, it seems like days move at a snail's pace. But when you're done with your fourth year and you look back, it will have been a whirlwind and you'll be like, I just blew through that and I can't believe it's over. So, mm. you know, it's really important to just capitalize on all the opportunities that, that are made available to you. And then you have to learn how to kind of, you know, keep it under wraps, of course, and not go too extreme. You have to balance, you know, work life and everything. And that's totally important, but, hmm. but it is, it is really important to realize that that residency is a unique time to, to learn a tremendous amount through unique opportunities that you won't have another kind of opportunity at for the rest of your career. So. Yeah. It makes, makes a lot of sense. And uh, in the vein of Work-life balance. I, I like to ask um, uh, people I'm chatting with if they have a non-medical book recommendation or a book they really enjoy. Oh, yeah, that they think. Yeah, should read. you know, I actually because so full disclosure, I used to read a lot, and now <laughs> I, I just if I started to read a book nowadays, I would fall asleep. 
So, <laughs> and that has to do with, you know, my downtime I'm spending with my daughter, my wife, like, uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, but I, I did think, and, um, I, I was actually going to get, so one of the books that I have, I haven't actually read this book in a long time, but one of the books I loved when I was, um, probably, uh, undergrad, maybe even high school that I really loved. And I still think I haven't read in a while. So I hope it's still as good as it, as it used to be. It was a book called Ishmael. Mm. This was a, a really cool book that kind of, um, uh, was, you know, a bit fantasy in one way, but was a really cool perspective on kind of, um, the world as we know it and the world as we approach it and, and, um, really forces you to, to um, cast a different light on the way you view um, the way humans interact with the planet and, and the ways that we're hurting it. Mm. Um, I always, and, and that author, I can't even remember his name now, um, you know, did put out a couple of think additional books after that, that weren't obviously as good as that first one, but, but similar themes. And then um, let me think of, I, 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 remember looking at this with your, your email and thinking I, I was going to give a more recent book too, but, mm. Oh, that's what I wanted to. Yeah. Born to run. I love the mm. book born to run. So mm. it's a really well, and then John Krakauer books, I think are great too. Yeah. He's written a lot of very cool books, but the born to run is a cool book and it's got like some um, follow-up to it. It's a bit of a, a tragic story, but it's, it's the concept that human beings were actually built you know, from a, from an evolutionary standpoint, human beings were born to run and they mm. were born to run shoeless. Like, so we're not supposed to be running and in shoes and mm. it gets to the whole, it talks a lot about the history and, and biology of, of human anatomy, but it's interspersed with chapters surrounding a very kind of big, um, uh, ultra marathon, ultra uh, trail run that takes place every year. And shows how different competitors in that field um, and and different cultures around the world that do kind of essentially ultra running approach it. And mm-hmm. so really neat kind of comments for someone that's interested in science and 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 also as a runner. Mm. Um, you know, the combination of those two things in one book was 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 really cool. So that's a little bit more recent than Ishmael, but Ishmael probably, even if it's a bad book, like, cause I haven't read it in over 10, 15, maybe 20 years at this point, mm. I did go back and read it again. I wonder if I would still like it, but I remember it having a big impact on my outlook on things when I, when I did read it when I was younger. So. Absolutely. I'll have to check that out. I hadn't heard of that before, but it's, it sounds, sounds awesome. Have you ever I tried? I do think, I think they made a movie. It wasn't called Ishmael, but they made a movie, I think with Anthony Hopkins that was based oh. around this book. And I can't remember the name of the movie now, but it was basically um, a gorilla that could communicate and speak mm. and share kind of the primates perspective on how human beings were destroying the world. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh. And I think they made it was all based on Ishmael, but they they basically I think it was Anthony Hopkins. They made a movie basically mm. based off that book. So and even that movie is probably over 10, 15 years old now. So. Yeah. Check it out. Um Awesome. Um, uh, with that, uh, let's jump into some of our, our clinical cases. Sure. And, uh, so I was hoping to, to chat um, about localization in the peripheral nervous system. So I, I've got a couple cases. And, and what I'm hoping for is we can just sort of talk about based upon really purely history and physical exam 
and I've included a, a little bit of diagnostics, um, just how you approach these patients, how you think about it. Because I think one of the most difficult things for me when I see patients either on a consult service or in a clinic visit who just have some form of weakness is kind of really localizing because um, I feel like that's all then uh, about the differential diagnosis and what tests I want to order. Um, yep. So I think this would uh, selfishly be incredibly helpful for me. Um, sure. And uh, so I'll, I'll jump in the first case that I have. So Mr. Montgomery. And do you at, want me to, do you want me to pull this open to, to read it or are you going to read it? I'll, uh, I'll read it. Uh, okay. For you. Yeah. Okay. Um, and feel free to, if you want any uh, repeat of any of the, the aspects. Okay. We've got a patient uh, I've named Mr. Montgomery. He's a 64-year-old guy who's admitted to the hospital complaining of six months of progressive leg weakness um, that has caused him three falls at home. He's uh, also started using an, a walker to ambulate. Notably, he was prescribed uh, Prevostatin six months earlier because of uh, high cholesterol. And about two months earlier, the Prevostatin was stopped for about one month um, due to suspicion that it might be contributing and didn't cause any improvement in his leg weakness. And so they started him back up on that. Um, over the six months, he reports that his weakness slowly worsened. Um, how would you approach just kind of generally a patient reporting progressive leg weakness? Yeah, so I think just off the history, you know, you'd want to ask specifically, so it sounds like he's having problems ambulating. So that can be you know, some clinical clues you can ask about. So first it's fast, right? This is not like a guy developing insidious kind of chronic progressive neuropathy. This is pretty quick. He was high functioning and then six months ago, things changed. You'd want to ask certain activities. So when you ask and you want to know whether somebody's having, so first you always want to clarify what weakness means with the patient. Mm -hmm. So sometimes patients will have you know, completely be deafferent and have severe sensory loss and they won't be able to use their limb because they have severe sensory deficits and they'll call that weakness because mm. functionally they're not able to use the limb. So you want to make sure, and the best way isn't necessarily to be like, what do you mean by weakness? Because the patient's probably going to give you the same piece of history. The better ask there is tell me some of the activities that you have problems with. So in this case, it sounds like he's having problems walking. Mm. So you might say, is it an issue with getting up? You know, are you having problems getting out of a chair, out of the car, up and down off the toilet? Are stairs a problem, which are these classic things that go along with proximal weakness? Or is it that you're up and you're walking fine, but every time, you know, you get to a rug or the ground's uneven, you start catching your toes or stumbling or tripping. Hmm. And that's going to, again, suggest more distal weakness per se. But it could be that, you know, if a person says their legs are weak. And, and we just had this yesterday with a, a young ALS patient. You know, they said that their their problems with their legs, and they oftentimes they'll say balance and that type of thing. And 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 turns out this person had completely normal strength, but they had a lot of spasticity. Mm. So that might be a circumstance where you know they their legs don't move quickly enough, where the slightest thing can knock them off kilter and they fall. And so they they think it's a balance problem, but it's actually a pyramidal or a spastic issue. Mm. Um, Alternatively, you know, patients can, again, have severe, severe sensory deficits where they'll come in and tell you they're weak and they can't stand in the shower or they fall frequently and they think that they're weak in their legs and it's because they can't feel their legs. But then you find out that, you know, and again, sometimes this isn't even evident on history. You need to examine them. Um, you know, their strength is completely fine. I mentioned ALS, but spasticity, obviously, you'd also think about spinal cord diseases as well and, and myelopathies, which that's a very common um, um, 
pitfall that a lot of say referring providers make when they send people to neuromuscular a person comes in with sensory changes in their legs and they think, Oh, well, it must be peripheral neuropathy. Mm. It's fairly common that these patients have, you know, structural or compressive myelopathies and, and, and they're just manifesting with lower limb sensory changes. So mm. that's where the exam obviously is key, but, but historically, you know, you would ask some of those particular questions, you know, try and get a sense as to whether or not they're describing weakness. And if they are describing actual weakness, is it proximal? Is it distal? Mm. Asymmetry is going to be critical because, you know, again, you don't want to just kind of have anchor bias. And in this case, well, it's statin and maybe it's statin related. So I'm just going to think this is a muscle issue. Mm. You want to, you know, you want to ask, you know, the statin could have nothing. Everybody's on a statin. So the statin Mm. could have nothing to do with anything. And if the person says that their right leg is much weaker than their left or their right leg is weak when it comes to say lifting it and clearing the stairs, but their left leg is the one that they catch their toes on. They have this asymmetric patchy process. Well, then you have to start worrying about disorders that are asymmetric. So some myopathies, pretty rare, but there are a handful. Muscle disease, or I'm sorry, motor neuron disease, which is classically asymmetric, asymmetric neuropathies. And that's where, you know, the follow-up question to weakness and what that means is going to really focus on um, whether or not there's concurrent sensory involvement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the lots of ways to ask that. Is it that the, you know, the leg feels asleep? Does it feel like it's been shot with Novocaine? Mm-hmm. Is there burning? Is there tingling? Is there pain? Um, you know, you want to make sure to, as best you can with the history, because as we know, this the sensory exam is probably the least objective part of the neurologic assessment mm-hmm. and the least reliable so that it really comes down to history and you have to go off the patient's history. And so if it's a pure motor phenomenon. You're really not getting any history of any um, sensory symptoms. Well, you still could be dealing with a neuropathy. The patient doesn't appreciate it. And then you might end up, you know, looking at electrical studies and, and your exam to see if there's sensory deficits. But under the assumption that it's pure motor, it's going to obviously narrow your differential tremendously to things basically from the anterior horn cell distal um, so does that answer the question? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, uh, incredibly helpful. And you made the point, um, that to so your history is, uh, trying to glean, um, proximal versus distal weakness. And you sort of ask, um, some of the questions more suggestive of proxim- proximal weakness are, you know, is it difficult uh, standing up from a chair? Um, is it difficult, uh, I guess, pulling yourself up, um, into the shower, and distal more, as you alluded to, is uh, did your foot catch um, when you're walking on the carpet or something like that? And fundamentally, uh, that allows you to increase a likelihood if it's proximal weakness of more of a myopathy and distal weakness of more of a neuropathy. Or how do you sort of how does to that- some degree? Not so. So I I will never know necessarily just from the history. I mean, there's other things. So you know, you do think and classically associate proximal weakness with myopathy and that's a common leap to make but it turns out that you know you don't again you don't want to anchor yourself too much just off the history because there's plenty of neurogenic conditions that cause proximal or preferentially proximal weakness mm-hmm. root disease anterior foreign cell disorders neuromuscular junction you know so it might not always be primary muscle mm-hmm. but then the flip side you know people that catch their toes, that can, you know, be a distal myopathy too. So, or Mm -hmm. something like, you know, inclusion body myositis. So you want to mainly use it for the sense of where you're going to kind of 
um, try and corroborate or confirm where that history is coming from when you go and examine the patient. I see. And as it evolves and as you kind of are, are kind of using this exam to go back and forth between the history you got. And the bottom line is a good neurologist will actually be concurrently adding to the history while they're examining a patient, because it's oftentimes the case that you'll hear the history. You have a certain set of things in mind that you think is going on. And then you start examining the patient. It's like, whoa, they, you know, I did not see this coming at all. And mm. they totally didn't appreciate this. And then, so for instance, let's say this person does have a spastic paraparesis and they say their legs are weak, but it's, it's actually a ton of spasticity. Well, mm. maybe, I mean, a good neurologist probably would have screened and they're screening questions about bowel and bladder dysfunction, but maybe you start to really drill down on that a little bit more. And, and maybe you ask them, well, do you have any bowel or bladder problems? But now you're really going to change it. And you're going to be like, well, you know, when you go to the bathroom, do you feel like you're emptying your bladder all the way? Or do you have to go back again? Or, you know, you might kind of, while you're examining them, be like, are you sure about this? Or, you know, tell me, you know, are you sure that when you're in the shower, your imbalance isn't worse when you close your eyes? You know, th there's all these mm -hmm. things that could come out of your exam that, 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 um, well, it's a kind of back and forth thing. It's not a linear thing. So you're going to yeah. go back to your, your, your history throughout the time you're examining based off the things that you want to test and you're kind of doing hypothesis generating and then testing and then going back. And you're doing that kind of back and forth throughout the time you're, you're while you're in the encounter. Um, yeah. so again, you know, those are the classic associations, proximal versus distal, but hmm. But I, I tend to keep a very open mind when I'm when I'm gathering history and just more so think about. So, you know, I hear proximal weakness. It sets off all these things that cause proximal weakness. Of course, sometimes with a great historian, by the time you're done with the history, it's like, you know, you pretty much have said this isn't monoravity multiplex. This isn't spastic paraparesis. Mm. You know, this is highly likely to be a muscle disease, perhaps based off the upper limb symptoms concurrent with the lower limb or something like that. But Mm. sometimes you do have to go into the exam with a more open mind and it's not as, not as straightforward just from the history. Totally makes sense. And so you mentioned, um, so spastic paraparesis masquerading as weakness. Is that something where a patient will have some sort of upper motor neuron dysfunction? Um, but exactly. then so, full yeah. strength. so when you measure their strength and very strong, incredibly strong, it's just the movement is so slow or they can't actually get the, the, the muscles in the limb to activate quickly enough, or mm. they can't, it's so severe that they can't move the limb at all. Mm. Um, and it's purely upper motor neuron, but you know, mm. for those that can move the limb and have just really bad upper motor neuron disease, the classic condition that we see beyond hereditary spastic paraparesis is, is PLS. These patients, you know, have gait problems. When you examine them, they're incredibly strong. And, um, you know, they just have slowed movement as a result of their upper motor neuron disease, mm -hmm. um, but they may have zero evidence of weakness. If you formally measure their strength, um, it just takes them a little while to generate the strength, but, but they have no issues whatsoever in achieving the same strength that something that a normal individual would. Got it. And, uh, and so it sounds like history's kind of giving you evidence, sort of helping you build in your mind, a differential that you're. Um, then probably going to pair with your neuro neurological exam to tweak and ask uh, follow-up questions based upon your findings. And yeah. it seems like uh, symmetry versus asymmetry is also a big part of what you're trying to tease out also on history. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's critical because it, it um, 
clear asymmetric findings, you know, dramatically change your, your thought process. And again, you might not be able to hundred percent rule out or localize to one exact area, but the number of entities within different localizations will change tremendously based off the presence or absence of asymmetry. Got it. So for instance, there's, there's a very, you know, muscle disease is not always symmetric, but the number of muscle diseases that are asymmetric is much smaller than those that are symmetric. So you find asymmetry, you're thinking muscle, your differential is kind of narrowed quite a bit by that finding. Yeah. Similarly with neuropathies, you know, um, hmm. all, all the different localizations, you know, asymmetry is, is um, exceptional and can be very helpful in narrowing down your differential. Got it. And then when you're thinking about your neurological exam and we've worked in, in clinic a couple times and um, so it's an extremely comprehensive exam. And I imagine you probably do the same comprehensive exam for, for most patients, but if, if you had to emphasize maybe to sort of other neurologists or other people who have just more of a non-specific to weakness type of exam, what are you, are you focusing on uh, when you go in for a neurological exam and a patient complaining of weakness? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I, I do actually tweak everybody's exam a little bit. Now, if I, if I get a history, say I'm seeing a patient with small fiber neuropathy, um, based off the history, I'm suspicious for small fiber neuropathy. Mm-hmm. And that individual, my pre-test probability of finding something abnormal is, is low, so in that case, I'm basically, my exam is, is tailored to find something abnormal, mm. meaning, you know, I'm going to like really make sure that that person has full strength. I'm going to do all the sensory modalities to make sure that there's nothing abnormal whatsoever, mm. because most of those patients are going to have normal exams. And the goal, not goal, but the point in doing the examination in that case isn't to really um, help with localizing. It's to prove that there's nothing wrong. That's the support of your hypothesis. There's just not nothing wrong. There's something wrong. I mean, nothing abnormal on their examination beyond maybe a pinprick gradient, which again, when you get into the sensory side of things, that's, you know, again, one of the less objective things that you can really use, but it is important. Um, so Every exam, you know, is going to differ a little bit based off the the clinical circumstance, and you're going to drill down more on certain elements based off what the history is suggesting. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I do neuromuscular disorders, so most of the time, and probably most of the time you've seen patients with me, my mental status exam is going to be based off the fact that I was talking to the patient, they followed commands, they gave a great history, you know, that's my mental status exam. But every once in a while, like right now, I'm taking care of a gentleman that probably has a familial form of prion disease that's mainly mm. manifesting with myeloneuropathy. Mm. And so in that case, you know, the, the, the second time I saw him, I was, you know, getting out the mocha and I'm drilling down on the mental status and really trying to identify the domains that are abnormal in his case. And, you know, that's not what I do on, on, on all my neuromuscular patients. There's just simply mm. not enough time uh, to, to, to do these super comprehensive exams. But in his case, it's important how much brain involvement is there? Um, so it, it really just is determined. But what I would say is, you know, for you know this case, let's say, you know, this case, I'm going to blow through the mental status because I'm going to presume this patient's <laughs> a great historian and they gave me this history. What am I going to pay attention to on the cranial nerves? Well, I'm going to be looking for oculobulbar dysfunction because they have pro- they could have leg weakness. I want to make sure they don't have neuromuscular junction disorder. There's rare forms of muscle disease that can affect the cranial bulbar musculature. 
I'm certainly going to be paying attention to whether or not I see any upper motor neuron signs or anything mm-hmm. to suggest that this person could have ALS or motor neuron disease. I'll be listening mm-hmm. to their speech. I'm going to be evaluating their tongue. I typically almost always check neck flexion extension when I'm evaluating myopathy, neuromuscular junction, motor neuron disease. I think that's a very helpful test and it's a surrogate sometimes depending on who you talk to. There's different levels of, uh, of confidence with this, but it's a surrogate for respiratory dysfunction. And then the motor exam, you know, very few patients will get out of my clinic without having kind of an assessment of power and all pertinent muscle groups. Sometimes you're going to add in, say you're worried about IBM. I don't check the flexor pollicis longus and the flexor digitorum profundus and do grip strength testing on every single one of my, my patients. But in the patient who I'm worried about sporadic inclusion body myositis, you can bet I'm going to check that on both sides and I'm going to look and mm-hmm. see if there's gradients across the FDP to look for asymmetry. Hmm. So, but, but an assessment of power tone, I definitely look for upper motor neuron signs. If it's relevant by checking things like finger tapping, drift, orbiting, hmm. um, foot tapping. Um, but you know, I, I, most patients, with the exception again, maybe of patients where it's, it's crystal clear, like a small fiber neuropathy patient and their strength is normal. I'll check their tone. They always get their tone checked for the differential myelopathy, mm. but, you know, for the most part, I'm not going to dive into checking all these specific muscle groups in that context. Strength is normal. Tone's fine. Um, I do it even on my myopathy patients or the patients who I suspect a primary muscle disease mm. or somebody who I'm suspicious of motor neuron disease. They're all my first encounter. They're all going to get a very thorough sensory exam to confirm that we're dealing with a pure motor phenomenon and that there isn't a concurrent sensory issue. Mm. There are forms of motor neuron disease that can cause sensory dysfunction. You know, I'm mm. not hundred percent certain maybe before I see them that this is primary muscle, there's forms of um, uh, neuromuscular junction disorders that can have concurrent neuropathies. So, mm. you know, everybody's going to get a very thorough sensory exam. Everybody will be, uh, I'll watch everybody walk or at least attempt to walk reflexes are critical. You know, these are the things that really no patient can get out of my clinic without having done. And then the amount of testing that I do for coordination, by the way, I avoid using the term cerebellar because there's really not cerebellar exam findings. Um, Mm. but, but coordination function, um, you know, that's going to be influenced based off, um, uh, what I'm seeing with the other parts of the exam and the history. So, I'm going to drill down a lot if I'm seeing, say, somebody with a form of sensory ataxic neuropathy, or I'm seeing a patient with a complicated spinal cerebellar ataxia. I'm, of course, going to drill down, and I might even use some of the ataxia rating scales when I'm doing Mm. the coordination testing. Mm. Um, So, again, the tools you pull in and what you use is going to be very much influenced by what you think is going on and what your plans are, too. It's good. The ataxia rating scales can be very helpful, say, if you're dealing with somebody with a potential treatable or reversible cause of their ataxia, having a biomarker that you can measure and follow that's more valuable than any MRI or anything. Can you actually Mm. measure the severity of their ataxia? We use that a lot and we'll follow that in our clinical practice. Um, The final thing I'll mention, in addition to emphasizing that everybody, you need to watch everybody walk, which Mm. that's one thing that every neurologist needs to know, or if they can't walk, watch them sit on the edge of the bed. You need to assess their trunkal stability, you need to make sure you're assessing gait in some way. Mm. The other thing that needs to happen, particularly in our practice, and I emphasize this, particularly when you're dealing with patients who are worried about motor neuron disease, and you saw this on, on Monday, motor neuron disease, 
myopathy, not only with the motor exam, do you need to know about strength, power, tone, whether there's upper, lower motor neuron signs, you need to know whether or not that patient has loss of muscle bulk. Do they have atrophy? Mm. Are they, do they have fasciculations? And where is that atrophy? Where is the loss of muscle bulk? Mm. So you really, you need to do kind of a full exam and a patient should be in a gown when you, when you meet them for the first time, I'm not saying every ROV that I see gets in a gown. I'm not, you know, that's impractical. I totally get that. But first time I meet somebody IOV, I'm almost always going to put them in a gown. I'm going to be looking at things, particularly when I'm dealing with a differential of, of muscle versus nerve or anterior horn cell. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I think that's, Oh, and then of course, you know, um, different muscle diseases are going to have concurrent connective tissue disease elsewhere in the body. So it's Mm. not uncommon, like, you know, my vasculitic neuropathy patients or someone comes in and I'm worried about mononeuropathy multiplex, I might actually look at their joints a little bit. I might talk to Mm. them a little bit more about, you know, are there any other signs of vasculitis or systemic disease, you know, in the patients with muscle disease where I'm worried about an immune inflammatory myopathy you can bet that I'm going to go back and take a history on fevers and Raynaud's and dysphagia Mm -hmm. and interstitial lung disease and recurrent fevers. I'm going to drill down to see if I can use those historical features to build a case that we're dealing with one type of immune inflammatory myopathy versus another. Hmm. So again, that's just another one of those things where, again, I mentioned in the beginning, you know, sometimes you have to put on your medicine thinking cap and think like an internist and think about kind of the other parts of the the, the patient that could give you a clue to what's going on with them. Absolutely. And just to unpack some of the different things you're screening for. So you mentioned upper uh, versus lower motor neuron signs. Um, Typically when I think about upper motor neuron signs, I'm thinking about increased reflexes. Um, you mentioned uh, finger taps as well, um, and foot taps as, as a sign. Any other things on neurological exam that you're, or sort of a yeah? Of so the my, my kind of go to things are oftentimes um, the speed uh, of finger and toe tapping. Um, I'm going to check tone and, and pay attention to whether or not it seems like you know is there rigidity with a consistent amount of resistance to, to passive movement throughout the entire range of motion. Or is it velocity dependent? And I end up seeing patients a lot more where they seem to have normal tone, but you know you can clearly detect a catch. And this is again mm-hmm. the ALS population, so you're, you're looking for a velocity dependent component to, to assessment of tone. And then my other upper motor neuron signs that I'll often use. So obviously I'm looking for facial asymmetry, which can happen in a number of different um, disorders that end up in the neuromuscular clinic, like ALS, but. Mm-hmm. Peripherally in the appendicular musculature, I'm looking at things in addition to finger uh, tapping and toe tapping, I'm going to look at um, pronator drift. I'm going to look at orbiting to see whether or not one limb moving as well as the other. Um, and then, you know, sometimes depending on the patient and let's say somebody is um, got ALS and they have mixed upper and lower motor neuron disease. Well, they might have a foot drop from the lower motor neuron disease, but the proximal strength is fine. You might need to do heel tapping in that case because they're not going to be mm. doing much toe tapping because they have a lower motor neuron issue. So you, again, you need to kind of adapt the exam to to be able to assess what you, what you're after to look for the concurrent presence of upper and lower motor neuron disease. Makes sense. And then the lower motor neuron signs are more um, sort of decreased muscle bulk over the long term, uh, fasciculations. Uh, anything else you're screening for on exam? Yep. So diminished bulk, fasciculations, low tone, and then 
And then I, what I would say is, and, and once you're experienced enough, you know what I'm talking about. And for those that are more junior, they'll, they'll eventually know this. When you have examined enough people and thousands and thousands of people, you know what weakness feels like. Mm. And, and you can tell whether or not that weakness is due to upper or lower motor neuron disease. And an upper motor neuron disease weakness and problems activating is this kind of slow, delayed movement. And mm. whereas lower motor neuron weakness, it's kind of this consistent amount of effort. The tone is, again, down typically, but you can just overcome them. Mm. Um, now, mm. obviously, people can have what looks like pure upper motor neuron disease. You put a needle in their muscle, they have concurrent lower motor neuron disease. So it's not perfect, but on exam, there are ways to, you know, lower motor neuron weakness feels a lot different than upper motor neuron mm. weakness in clinical practice. Fascinating. And uh, you mentioned, uh, so it's screening for spasticity. I feel like something I always struggle with is um, just really getting the patient to relax to the point yes. where I can dif- differentiate true spasticity from they're just really trying to help me on the exam. Yeah. Is that just something just with experience, with time? Do you have any specific experience, time, distraction, you know, um, encouragement? Sometimes you never get there, right? Sometimes patients are so anxious and, and, you know, the last thing they're going to be able to do is is relax for you. But but all those strategies can be used. Um, Sometimes it's the company it keeps too. So maybe I'm not going to be able to detect that a person has spasticity, but they sure are orbiting or those finger taps are sure slower on that side. And, and while I might not have been able to say a hundred percent, it was impaired relaxation, which again can be pathologic versus, you know, increased tone or, or spasticity. Maybe I'm not going to be able to get there. Mm. And, and I think documentation, we're not going to talk about that this hour, but as you know, I'm like a huge super anal about documentation, but that's mm. exactly an area where you would kind of um, editorialize there in the exam, you'd say, I mm. couldn't convincingly get the patient to relax to know whether or not there was increased tone or something like that. Yeah. So there's tricks you can try all the common tricks, but sometimes you just can't get there and, and you just need to note it as such. Um, makes sense. And uh, so to bring it back to our case um, and if I gave you a little bit more, maybe of the history sort of given um, the things we chatted about that you'd be interested in, let's say the patient gives a little bit more of a history of um, proximal weakness or saying that uh, I guess that would be, they have a ton of difficulty getting up from a chair, but maybe when they're up there, they do okay. Um, that seems to be the biggest thing. Are there any other specific things in terms of proximal weakness that are sort of patients will complain about the most or that really jump out at you? Yeah. So in the upper limbs, you know, you'd ask about overhead activities and, mm-hmm. and problems, you know, combing one's hair, shampooing your hair, reaching Mm. up on shelves, um, lifting objects, um, you know, overhead, those, you know, those are all things that that you might ask about as well to get assessment of the upper limbs. Um, But yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, So let's say he he also gives a history uh, um, with combing his hair or, or I guess reaching um, high up um, also causes him difficulty putting his arms over his head. Uh, and then let's say you get to the examination um, and you were sort of performing the comprehensive evaluation that you, you went through. And let's say the notable findings were um, his cranial nerves are all intact, no evidence of um, sort of weakness within a cranial nerve distributions. Um, he's got moderate neck flexor weakness um, and then marked proximal weakness of his arms and legs. Um, can't uh, stand up from a chair without using his arms. 
and then a gait that's slow and unsteady, but I'm not definitively ataxic. Uh, based on, on that physical exam, what are there any other things you would really hone in on on the neurological exam or things you'd kind of double check? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would definitely want to know if the patient had reflexes or not, if they were normal up or down, you know, he's completely areflexic with that presentation. Again, this is six months older patient makes it unlikely, but it's just always important to entertain the, the possibility of a, uh, of spinal muscular atrophy. When you have somebody with proximal weakness, um, that's symmetric. I think that's an important differential to always think about, but mm-hmm. assuming it's muscle person has reflexes, um, you know, the only other thing that you might do, um, say the person has reflexes, but their patellar reflexes are gone. There's one nice bedside trick you can use for patients with presynaptic neuromuscular junction disease, which in this gentleman's case, you would worry about Lambert Eaton myasthenic syndrome, perhaps, you know, given his age, um, maybe you'd obviously want to know if he had a smoking history, but, but, um, you know, you can have them exercise, just do 10 seconds, five, 10 seconds of kind of maximal uh, isometric exercise by giving him resistance at the quadriceps and then have him relax and see if you can bring out his reflexes. So this post-exercise facilitation of reflexes, which can be a very, very, very helpful uh, exam sign at the bedside that the reason that would be relevant, it's more than just something interesting academic is when you send the patient over, because this patient in my practice is going to get electrical studies you know, in that particular case, you might not only be requesting, you know, an evaluation for myopathy, but you might mention the fact that in addition to screening for um, a postsynaptic neuromuscular junction disorder, because most of the time it's good practice, you know, some folks with binding antibody associated or any form of mycenae gravis can present with like a limb girdle phenotype, similar to what you're describing, describing with this individual proximal arm and leg weakness. So it's always important. We usually will do rep stem when we do our evaluations for myopathy, just as a standard to make sure that we're not dealing with somebody with, with um, myasthenia. But in this case, if you found this, you might specifically, and, and this doesn't always get done, specify on the, on the, on the order that you want pre and post exercise testing done to look for a presynaptic neuromuscular junction disorder like LEMS. So again, but assuming reflexes are fine, you're basically dealing with a pure, motor syndrome, proximal symmetric weakness. The next thing I'm going to do in that individual, I'll probably check their muscle enzymes. I'll check their thyroid function, but I'm going to send them across the way to, to the EMG lab to, to basically get electrodiagnostic testing done. And there I'm going to be looking whether or not this person has an irritable or a non-irritable myopathy. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to end up, if they have an irritable myopathy, I'm going to send autoantibodies in this case, you'd be worried about HMGCR antibodies given the exposure to a statin. But the bottom line is you don't need exposure to a statin to have those antibodies. Oh. And there's a whole slew of other autoantibodies that can be associated with immune inflammatory myopathies that would present like this. I will end up biopsying these patients. Um, different specialties um, end up practicing differently and might use imaging as a surrogate to say you don't need pathology. But our practice here, and again, this is probably better for a whole separate hour, is mm-hmm. we, we have good um, um, evidence to say that, you know, you can use a lot of the information that you gather underneath the microscope, uh, even in the absence of antibodies to guide you to take care of the patient and know what you need to look for. Is this mm-hmm. person going to have cancer? Is this person going to get interstitial lung disease? Do I need to keep an eye out for all these systemic complications? Oh, interesting. So, so we use pathology as 
kind of part of the integral workup of these disorders. Now that's stated your case, a person that has, um, let's say this person, I'll just use this at the very end, just to point this out and make one point with statins. Statins cause a number of different types of muscle problems. Not that there's one form of statin myopathy. So statins are associated with a number of different muscle diseases. A classic one that's very common is cramps, pain, muscle discomfort, in the absence of weakness, maybe a CK will be a little bit high. Definitely it has an association with a statin, but it can happen. It's idiosyncratic and it can happen anytime a person has a statin, not always right when it started. It can occur later on in the treatment course, mm-hmm. but it resolves and goes away typically can take a while, but usually by six to 12 months after it stopped, those muscle symptoms will die down. Mm-hmm. Some, and, and again, these people don't end up weak. Their CKs never get very high. It might be a little bit elevated, but never very high. They might describe cramps and Charlie horses and this type of muscle discomfort. But when you measure them and examine them, they're not weak, mm. peel them off the statin, some people will say that if, you know, you, they really need it or they're still having symptoms, you can give them CoQ or maybe if they can afford it, of course, because it's not cheap, but going on CoQ10, when you take your statin, maybe that prevents this particular syndrome of, of statin oh. myalgias and statin-related pain. Um, but the bottom line is these patients get better. They have a good prognosis um, and, and it's literally just a, a, a pain syndrome. Mm. then there's a form of statin associated muscle disease that's more acute and it's associated with legit rhabdo. So these patients get Mm. weak. They may or may not have muscle pain, but their CK goes through the roof. Mm. They get myoglobinuria and all the risks and complications that come of that. They avoid statins. It's a monophasic thing done. Mm. And then there's a third disease that's actually very distinct and different. And I would emphasize has an association with statins but it's mm. not, but statins aren't a necessary component to have this disorder. Mm. That is an antibody mediated disorder that targets the same, the antigen that's targeted by the antibody. And again, this is intracellular. So this is an association, mm. not causation. So th- this antibody is not pathogenic to our knowledge, mm. but it definitely has an association with mm. the condition. Um, mm. And it's, it's an antibody against HMGCR, HMG coireductase, which is the rate limiting enzyme in, bio, in cholesterol biosynthesis. It's also the target of statins. Mm-hmm. So, so basically the idea here is that there's an antibody against this, which is, this is an antigen that is expressed in muscle. And it turns out that it's preferentially expressed in, in regenerating muscle fibers. Mm-hmm. And the more statin you get by negative feedback, the mm. more HMGCR expression there will be. So mm. patients that are on statins mm. are going to have a lot more HMGCR antigen present via just feedback mechanisms. You know, you're mm. inhibiting an enzyme, get more of the enzyme on board. And so you'll have more expression of HMGCR in the setting of a statin, but you do not need to be on a statin to get this disease. It's a risk factor. And it's something that can be associated with, if you will, fanning the flame of the disease. But there's pediatric cases of, of this disease where an antibody associated with H or against HMGCR is associated mm-hmm. with a very, very severe immune and to a lesser degree inflammatory muscle disease that results in severe proximal weakness, high CK, 
And then a certain percentage of patients can be very refractory to treatment. So some patients end up needing IVIG, rituximab. These patients can end up very weak. Mm-hmm. And it does have an association with statins, but you do not need to be exposed to statins to get this disease. Mm-hmm. If they do, if it, they are in the group that has an association with being exposed to a statin and then developing this illness, there's very clear evidence that if you, um, again, from the presumed pathophysiology, if you, again, introduce statins again down the chain, well, oh, it was just an inflammatory disorder. We have that under control. They look great. They're on steroids. No problem. There is good anecdotal and to some degree, you know, series-based evidence that if you introduce a statin again, hmm. those patients can once again develop a flare in their illness. And when you think about the biology of it, it makes sense. You're basically kind of, again, turning on an antigen or increasing the expression of an antigen. So, and again, it might not be pathogenic to causing the muscle disease, but it is a byproduct of kind of, it's a readout, if you will, of, of the underlying biology, whatever is causing the muscle pathology. Um, so, and again, this is an antigen that's on, on um, regenerating muscle fibers. When you have a lot of damage and regeneration, it kind of, then it starts to feed forward on itself and can snowball on itself. So, um, but kind of got in the weeds there with that last one, but, but three, I would think of stands as being associated with three different muscle disorders, not mm. one. There's not, no such thing as statin myopathy. You have to be very mm. specific about which one of these things it is. Cause as I just outlined, they all have very different natural histories and very different therapeutic approaches for them. Mm-hmm. You know, the first one, you're going to take them off the drug, provide them with supportive care and reassurance for the year. The second one, you're going to have them in the hospital, giving them fluids to protect their kidneys and complications of problems, and they're never going to get a statin again. And then the third one is going to be in it for the long haul because they basically mm-hmm. have a disease that's you know going to require ongoing immunomodulatory therapy and management and close monitoring to make sure you're on top of the illness. So, mm-hmm. and if you just called it all statin myopathy, mm-hmm. you know you're you're going to end up mistreating the patient. So, absolutely, and uh, it, and that was the the case as, as it was designed was sort of to, to point us in that direction. And, um, and we, uh, did, aren't going to go into all the details, but there's, there's tons of diagnostic testing that you could use to differentiate between those three different disorders. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so for the first one, you know, that person, I might not even send that person for an EMG, to be honest with you, because they're strong, they have a normal exam. They just got a whole bunch of muscle pain. Now, if I, if I, if I check their CK and it's 50,000 or something like that, and maybe the weakness is in the mail or whatever, maybe that patient will come back. But for the most part, that's going to be observation, supportive care, symptomatic management. Second patient, I'm you know probably just going to observe that patient, get them in the hospital, make sure that they're getting fluids, watch mm. them. And, 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 you know, I'm not going to do a lot in that case. Mm. And honestly, most of the time, I'm not even going to end up seeing that patient you know, because mm. they're going to end up being taken care of and they're going to call it rhabdo from a statin and they might not even get us involved. Yeah. Um, and never just, they'll, they'll know not to put the patient on a statin again. The mm. third patient though, is going to get a fairly large workup. So that patient is going to get CK all the lace. They're going to get thyroid function testing. They're going to get an EMG. They're going to get a biopsy. They're going to get autoantibodies checked. Um, so there is going to be a lot more to be done for the third individual. That makes sense. Fantastic. And, uh, then as a a way of summarizing some of the stuff that we chatted about, um, so 
you sort of mentioned uh, when you're approaching a patient um, with a, a complaint of weakness, the biggest thing up top is trying to differentiate what the, their description of weakness is. What does weakness mean to them? You tease that out through uh, questions on the history, uh, specifically activity-related questions, what activities are prohibited or, or um, changed by their weakness, um, sort of asking questions to potentially tease about uh, proximal versus distal weakness, asymmetry versus symmetry, um, sort of a fatigability component, sort of a, a variety of other symptoms that may be related to their, their weakness. Um, and then your neurological exam is going to take all that into stock and then be tailored to um, uh, tease out uh, which disorders on your differential are the highest likelihood. And um, the sort of fundamentals, it, it seems like for every patient, um, you're doing um, uh, cranial nerve testing, um, testing of bulbar strength, um, thorough muscle testing, sensory testing, um, and then gait assessment, um, as well as uh, more detailed assessment, um, uh, depending on what you see, in addition to reflexes and, and finger taps, heel taps, and, uh, and then sort of just putting it all together, following up with um, additional history questions if, if something else jumps out in you um, at the exam, and then sort of uh, tiering your diagnostic testing then based upon all that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then we sort of chatted about uh, the, as you just summarized, sort of the three um, different uh, disorders that can sort of mimic um, or fall within the bucket of, of statin-induced myopathy, but are, are very dis distinct and discrete disorders requiring very different diagnostic approaches and treatment. Um, yeah. Any final concluding words about uh, weakness and, and sort of uh, kind of approaching it and, and taking care of these patients? Nope, just see it a lot and, and practice as much as you can. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much uh, for, for chatting with me. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. No problem. That concludes my interview with Dr. Buccelli. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to my podcast, liking me on Facebook, following me on Instagram at Brainboy Neurology, or on Twitter at Brainboy Neuro. And as always, feel free to pass along any comments or suggestions. I'll see you next time. The opinions expressed on this show are those of Brainboy Neurology and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the places of employment of the Brainboy Neurology staff. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified, board-certified practicing clinician.